Hello everyone and welcome to this episode 19 of the In Context podcast with me, Gregor Thompson, and the last episode of 2021, and it's a good one, let me tell you. But before that, I'd like to ask if you could please like, subscribe, or follow wherever you're listening, it does genuinely mean a lot, and if you could leave a good review, that would also be very much appreciated. For this episode, I spoke with Dr. Anna Lemke a psychiatrist, author and specialist in the treatment of addiction about her new book, Dopamine Nation, the role dopamine plays in our lives and society, how addictions manifest, how to treat and prevent them, and much more. So please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Anna Lemke. Okay, uh, Anna Lemke, I have the book here, uh, Dopamine Nation, um, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. And I want, will say how much I enjoyed the book because an indicator of how much I enjoy books is how much the pages have been <laughs> folded down. So that's all my like notes, everything I want Love to it. speak about, things I want to remember. Um, so let's just start with what is dopamine and how would you describe its role in the brain? Dopamine is a chemical that our brain makes. It's essential for movement. It's also essential for motivation, reward, and pleasure. Um, it's also the key molecule involved in the process of getting addicted. Things that are addictive release more dopamine in the brain's reward pathway than things that are not. Um, and the driver for addiction ultimately becomes not the pleasure that we get from the substance, but actually the physiologic drive to not be in pain. Um, and that works through this process of sort of relativity, the, the theory of relativity when it comes to pleasure and pain and how they're like opposite sides of the balance. Yeah. Is it, so do people dra- get more pleasure out of the drive to do something, the, anticip- the anticipation to do something than the actual experience itself? Or does the experience itself also um, produce dopamine? The experience uh, itself actually is the big payback, but we also um, get a little bit of dopamine when we're reminded of our drug of choice, um, either through external um, stimuli, a person, a place, a thing that reminds us of of using the drug or um, presages that the drug is soon to be available. But even our own euphoric recall of that drug can release a little bit of dopamine. But whether it's dopamine that's released um, in anticipation of the drug or dopamine that's released when we actually get the drug, the key piece is that after dopamine levels increase in response to that, they quickly decrease not to baseline levels, but actually below baseline levels into a dopamine deficit state. And that is what drives craving and also the incredible amount of work that people are willing to put toward getting their drug of choice, um, even when they're no longer feeling good. So I think that's the sort of the the message there that dopamine is really essential to responding to changes in our external and internal environment. It's very sensitive to um, intoxicants and cues that are pleasurable, but it can also be triggered by novelty, things that are new, new, and even aversive stimuli that our brains want us to pay attention to because they're potentially life-threatening. Um, so it's a, it's a very important molecule again, for making these constant micro readjustments to the environment and the the essential, you know, the thesis of the book is that because we're living in this world of, uh, you know, never ending overabundance of highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors in order to compensate to, for, you know, compensate 
um, for the constant bombardment of dop dopamine, we essentially have gone into this chronic dopamine deficit state, both individually and collectively, such that there's more anxiety, more depression, more bodily pain, because we have too much dopamine. And I suppose one thing I, I found interesting was almost the irony of addiction in that when people when people take their drug of choice and they go into that dopamine deficit state, that might make them stress, stressed, anxious, mostly about the addiction. So they might get very stressed about the addiction. Then that'll make them take the drug again to soothe those feelings of stress and anxiety and start that cycle over again. Is that, is that right? That's exactly right. I mean, it's this terrible, vicious cycle. We do something pleasurable, the balance tips this way, but then to try to bring it level again, we adapt to that, not just to level, but to the opposite and we're feeling anxious and we want more of the drug and we can feel then shame and depression about wanting more, but it's also just the physiology, the physiology of wanting the drug. So then we use more and then we go back to that painful side. So it's this constant sort of teeter totter that is elaborated upon by our own narrative, right? And the narrative is often a narrative of shame, self-loathing, I'm lying about our use, which then leads to more shame, all of which that can, can drive reuse. But even separate from the stories that we tell about our use is this physiologic dopamine deficit state that follows on the heels of an increase in dopamine. And that alone can drive repeated reuse, um, even in the absence of real pleasure. And how does dopamine contrast with uh, molecules like serotonin? Um, so like Daniel, one of the books I'm reading now, so after I read your book, I'm now very, very much interested in um, neuroscience and well, dopamine itself. So I'm reading um, The Molecule of More right. uh, by Daniel Lieberman. And so he, he calls these molecules here and now molecules. So um, right. how do they contrast with dopamine? Well, dopamine is essentially the sort of final common pathway of all reinforcing drugs and behaviors. It's not the only molecule that is involved in that. Um, you know, serotonin is involved. That's especially um, released when we feel connected to other people, also in response to various appetitive stimuli. Um, norepinephrine, our endogenous cannabinoid system, our endogenous opioid system. We make all of these molecules in our own brains and bodies. Um, and if we are ingesting substances that release those molecules all of a sudden in the reward pathway, then our brain will respond to that by stopping to manufacture as much of that molecule on our own, which again is what gets us into this, uh, this sort of uh, deficit state. So dopamine is, is really, is just one of, you know, many um, of such molecules, but it's probably again, sort of the final common pathway. And in, certainly in the animal science, the kind of way that we measure how reinforcing, um, you know, a drug or a behavior is. And so going specifically into the book itself, you start off um, with, I think, I think it's a very good choice the way you start off the book because you speak about one of your patients um, called Jacob, who is addicted to um, pornography and masturbation. And I think yeah. that um, is a very striking opening and it, and it, does, it drives me, it, like, it um, drove me into the book mm -hmm. um, because it's just, I just found that very interesting. I think a lot of people would maybe... Um, talk about pornography addiction and say that it's not possible to be addicted to something like that. What, how, how and why do people become addicted to stuff like that? Well, I mean, it's clearly 
um, and you know, a drug and highly addictive for, for some individuals. And I think the number of people addicted to pornography is only growing. Um, and I think this is a really a hidden addiction. Um, there's enormous shame with all types of addictions, but I think especially uh, with pornography addiction, especially among, among men. Um, you know, when we have an orgasm, it floods our brain with all kinds of feel-good neurotransmitters, including, including dopamine. So the orgasm itself is potentially a drug. And then if you then pair that with a stimulus, a visual stimulus, usually, um, you know, an image or, you know, a moving image or a still image, which is also a drug, right? Because um, that goes right to the visual cortex, which then goes to uh, our reward pathway. Then you have really a very potent drug because you've got the visual stimulus, plus you've got the physiologic orgasm. Um, it's super addictive. Um, and when people get addicted to pornography, it follows a very similar trajectory as getting addicted to other drugs and behaviors, people usually start out for fun or to solve a problem. The problem is usually something like insomnia, boredom, anxiety, depression. Um, if it works for them, then they go back to it. Um, over time with repeated exposure, um, they need more and more of that drug or more potent forms to get the same effect. And then pretty soon they're using regularly, compulsively in an out of control way. And in a way that has um, harmful consequences, maybe harmful for their job, maybe for their relationships, even, um, you know, physical harm, um, people can develop, um, you know, orgas orgasm problems, um, problems with ejaculation, um, all kinds of, you know, physical problems. And then of course, the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which is to say what we experience when we stop, are psychological symptoms, including anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use. And people who stop pornography will immediately spiral into a severe withdrawal. Um, they will even have you know, vivid dreams that involve using, which is very common for people who stop drugs and alcohol as well, relapse dreams, they wake up in a cold sweat wondering if they had really used. Um, so all of that is just very, very similar to people who get addicted to drugs and alcohol. Uh, does novelty play a part in this as well? I think like maybe in the 70s when the internet wasn't um, here, um, the pornography of that time would have been um, magazines, one magazine at a time, whereas now the massive change and the, the scale of internet pornography right now um, gives people that sort of novelty with one click. That's right. So if, 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 you know, if I were to mention the four things in the modern ecosystem that make uh, the, such an addictogenic world, it would be access, easy access, increased quantity. So pornography online is literally um, infinite, right? It's unlike a line of cocaine that you, know, you would eventually run out and have to go out and buy more. That's not true for pornography or TikTok or video games. Um, potency is huge. So um, one of the ways to overcome tolerance is to make a drug more potent. One of the ways to make a drug more potent is to combine two drugs together. You see that all the time online with digital products, um, including pornography. Now you've got gamification or enumeration, or you've got a lot of people joining the same space at once. So you're experiencing the same emotion at the same time. So you're combining pornography, the drug with that sort of, you know, distorted human connection with other people. 
Um, and then finally novelty, you're absolutely right. Dopamine is very responsive to new stimuli in the environment. And what these AI algorithms do specifically is learn us and then suggest to us something similar to what we liked before, but just a little bit different. And that sort of treasure hunting mode is really deeply ingrained in us. We're always looking for sort of like the next new thing or the next best thing, which is what keeps a lot of us online long past that activity has be, you know, become pleasurable. It's like, we know we're not really enjoying anymore, but we just keep thinking, oh, well, something, you know, something new is going to come along. I also think the key piece about novelty is that, you know, there are lots of people for whom traditional drugs like alcohol, nicotine, cannabis are not particularly reinforcing, but now there's a whole panoply of new drugs online that didn't exist before that are potentially reinforcing. And that certainly happened to me um, just in terms of what I talk about in the book, how I've really never found alcohol, caffeine, or other traditional drugs reinforcing. Like they just don't tip by pleasure pain balance to the side of a pleasure. They don't release much dopamine for me, but you know, online activities are highly reinforcing for me. Um, you know, as I talk about in the book, I got addicted to romance novels, mainly through my Kindle when I could just get them one after another. I'm very easily, um, you know, addicted to um, things on YouTube where I can find myself just hours later, you know, looking for that next YouTube video. So I think this novelty piece also expands the net for people who will get addicted, meaning that there are many more of us now struggling with minor and chronic uh, low-grade addictions. Do, do you have any ideas on any solutions for this? Because I think, I think a lot of people like to, like to think with these things that there's one big, simple solution, but in reality, there's a lot of different things that could be done. And one off the top of my head is just looking at the root of the issue here and looking at how, how old should we um, allow children to have mobile phones and have internet access and be... What should we be doing with, should we be monitoring children's internet access? Should we be restricting inter um, children's internet access? Um, what else could, could be done for this to reduce the amount of people who become addicted to things yeah. like pornography, social media? I think, I think in the digital age, I think novelty is quite a big problem. And I think social media mimics that of pornography in that you're getting so much novelty from these things. And I think a lot of people aren't aware of their vulnerability to at least overconsumption, but at worst addiction. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that it's exaggerated to conceptualize the phone as equivalent to a pack of cigarettes. And we wouldn't give a pack of cigarettes, you know, to a minor and we wouldn't advertise cigarettes to minors. We have all kinds of restrictions in place. You know, cigarettes are a legal drug, but we have individually, collectively, and also from a top-down level restricted access and use. And I think that we need to do similar things with smartphones, especially when it comes to children. Remember that we are born with more neurons than we're ever gonna have. And through the process of the developing brain between age zero to 25 is essentially a slow process of pruning or cutting back the neurons that we're not using and myelinating or making more efficient the neurons that we use frequently as we develop those circuits that will become really the foundation for our adult uh, brains. And this process especially happens, you know, um, this pruning back process in early to late adolescence and continues to about age 25. So if we're learning maladaptive coping strategies, um, you know, through that, that key neuronal development process, 
then we're establishing, you know, a foundational brain structure that's not going to serve us well into adulthood. Of course, we do preserve plasticity throughout life and the brain can continue to change and heal and all of that. But um, I just think it's super important that kids not have uh, unrestricted access and unmonitored access to the internet uh, until they're at least teenagers. And even then that it be limited, that it be monitored, that there be active discussions about what's appropriate safe use and what isn't, both in terms of consuming content and putting content out there. Um, and I think this is something that we can't just leave up to parents uh, to police. I think the schools need to step in and help us out and take phones away during class time and during the school day, um, create spaces where kids are learning um, to problem solve without necessarily using a computer to do that, learning to socialize without necessarily using a computer to do that. Um, and then acknowledging that the vast majority of people will probably be able to self-correct and figure this out, but there will be, as with all intoxicants and drugs, a subset of individuals, about 10 to 50, 15% in the population who will get addicted and that we have to make sure that we have additional resources, i.e. addiction treatment for those individuals and that they will need a more extreme type of intervention in order to help them because that's their drug of choice. You know, One person's social media is another person's cocaine. Um, and so I think we, we just really have to own that that is true um, and you know, do what we can. I think the most telling thing is that the people that made these phones or the people that made these social media sites did not allow their children to use them. Um, that's right. the most telling thing because they know the power of what they've created. That's right. Many still, so, I, I live here in the heart of Silicon Valley mm, and, of course. Um, you know, many of our neighbors restrict their kids phone access and phone use and many, you know, famous CEOs of major companies, uh, internet companies send their kids to special schools where they don't have computers. And um, so, yeah, so the things that, you know, they're pushing on the general public are things that they wouldn't even let their own kids use. Um, staying on the topic of children, I think one of the other things you mentioned in the book is the, the way we, we treat children has possibly changed in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, and so that was, that was actually very interesting. I always find something interesting here where the people that I find interesting where I read their books, there's usually a crossover with different people, other people that I like. So yeah. that the point, the point there that you made in the book was similar to the point of the coddling of the American mind. So that sparked actually my research last year. I looked into male mental health because um, a lot of the points they were making was that the mental health of um, children is deteriorating, especially yeah. amongst young girls was, mm -hmm. was what they said. But there wasn't so much about um, male suicide. So that's where males tend to overtake females um, yeah. with um, taking their own life. Um, so anyway, the, the idea I had, the question I had, sorry, was, do you think we're coddling children and that's perhaps producing um, more fragile adults who can't quite cope with the stresses of everyday life and that might contribute to um, vulnerability to addiction? You know, I think we're coddling all of us, right? In, in this hyper convenient world, we have very little opportunity to experience physical pain. Um, and remember, experiencing physical pain is, is important for recalibrating our dopamine reward pathway. And if we don't experience it, um, we're not going to have the opportunity to do that. 
beyond even what's painful, many of us don't even exert our physical bodies in any way. In fact, sex may be the last arena in which we have any kind of physical experience, unless we're very into sport or unless we're giving birth, you know, a woman giving birth, but there really aren't a lot of arenas in which people, um, you know, are in their bodies unless they intentionally seek that out. Um, and that combined with the incredible overabundance, um, I think makes us all more vulnerable. And I do think that it's contributed to this skewed um, parenting, which my generation is, is essentially, um, I think the apex of, or maybe really even the baby boomers who parented the millennials, um, this idea that, you know, if our kid has any kind of challenging experience, it's going to set them up for being on the psychoanalyst couch, you know, in adulthood. So there was this, has been this tendency to kind of protect our children from anything challenging to clear the path for them to facilitate anything they want to do. Um, a terrible kind of parental anxiety about our kid experiencing failure or not having opportunity or being traumatized in, in, in some kind of way, which I think really has led, um, you know, especially among millennials to a generation of individuals who are not all that emotionally prepared for the real world um, because they've not really had the opportunity to build up those mental calluses um, that allow them to be resilient in the face of failure, suffering, um, disappointment. And I think that generation is just now kind of realizing that and wondering why they're unhappy and why they're so fragile. Um, fortunately, we're incredibly adaptive. So I'm very optimistic that, 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 that the millennials are going to figure it out. And I actually feel really bad for them because I feel like they've really been sold a bill of goods in terms of what the good life is and how to, how to prepare people, you know, for a meaningful life. Well, I suppose the ironic thing is if they're, if they're struggling now and maybe they push through it, they'll come out stronger individuals from That's that. Right. That's um, right. Um, so another thing that, which is something you've already mentioned is the, the pleasure pain balance, which, um, especially with the image of the gremlins, which I've been um, very useful. Um, but I, I, one thing I found fascinating about this is I'm seeing similar balances with other aspects of life. Um, and it's this idea of yin yang, masculine, mm -hmm. feminine, chaos, order. And it seems that the best way to operate these things is to go right in the middle or make sure you're, you're keeping the balance going. So um, a lot of people will say, we'll take the, the idea of pain literally, whereas the idea of pain to me would be, which I think you're alluding to in the book, is when you're, if you go out for a run, for example, that's, it's not a painful experience, but it is hard and right. you will get pleasure afterwards. So it's mm -hmm. tipping the balance towards um, pain to get the pleasure afterwards. That's right. Um, so do you think that's useful advice for someone who's struggling with addiction to almost harness struggle or harness pain to, to get the pleasure down the road? Yes. So I advise this to all of my patients, especially in early recovery. Um, first of all, just not using their drug of choice will be painful as the balance yep. then tip, tips to the side of pain and the gremlins are sort of camped out there hopping up and down. And of course, if we wait long enough and abstain for long enough, those gremlins hop off and homeostasis or a level balance is restored. But one of the things that we can do to speed up that process of withdrawal and restoring homeostasis is actually intentionally do things that are hard. 
um, pressed intentionally on the pain side of the balance, which is counterintuitive. But when we do that, then those neuroadaptation gremlins actually hop on the pleasure side. Um, and that's things that, as you say, are hard, like going for a run. I also talk about ice cold water baths, um, but it can be something even more modest than that, like just unplugging, you know, just not listening to music, not watching a show, not being on our computers, sitting in a silent room. That can be really scary and painful. We're suddenly left with our own turbulent thoughts and imaginations and worries and conscience you know, uh, the things I should have done and didn't do, the ways I've harmed other people. Um, that's That in itself is really, really hard. But again, really important because what it does is it, it builds up those mental calluses. It, it's basically we're making dopamine. Whenever I go and ride my bike up this steep hill near my house, I just think I'm making dopamine because we really are. What happens when we do things that are hard is that there's a gradual, for example, ice cold water baths, there's a gradual increase in dopamine through the duration of the hard thing, like exercise, right, for example, too. And then when we stop that hard thing, those dopamine levels are actually maintained at an elevated level for hours afterwards, which is really amazing. Now contrast that to using an immediate feel-good substance. What we get is a sudden upward spike of dopamine for a very brief period, followed by a plummeting of dopamine, not just down to baseline levels, but below baseline levels, that's the dopamine deficit state, or the gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance before it's restored. So there's a huge cost, right? As opposed to this and then that. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing you mentioned there, um, being alone with your own thoughts, um, something that came to mind is when people are exercising and they're listening to music, I think um, Andrew Huberin mentioned this in a podcast actually, saying that, you should the majority of the time not listen to music or not listen to podcasts when you're exercising so that you um, start to get dopamine from the actual activity rather right. than the music or the podcast. Um, I think Joe Rogan says something as well with exercise saying that it's actually cheating if you're listening to music and you're doing mm-hmm. exercise. I suppose it's the difference between um, the physical activity, you're still doing the same exercises, but it's the mental exercise you're not doing by listening to music. Right. I mean, I think what exercise can be and, and what it's really useful for in addition to the physiologic, because, um, you know, exercise is immediately toxic to cells. So what it does is that it causes it, it, it's, our body goes, oh, you know, danger. I need to upregulate my own endogenous production of dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, all that good stuff. Um, but the other thing that exercise really can be is a moving meditation where, um, you know, we allow ourselves to just let our thoughts unfold um, and ultimately settle down. And that's really what meditation practices do, but sitting meditations are not for everybody. Some people just don't, don't sit well that long or are too physically restless. So those individuals in particular could benefit from a moving meditation where, um, you know, they let their, their thoughts just unfold as they will, which is essentially what meditation is, where we're not distracting ourselves from the constant percolation of emotions, ideas, and sensations in the brain. And it's really important to have a period of time in the day when we allow our brains to do that without constantly distracting ourselves. Because essentially, you know, there's this uh, network called the default, uh, default resting mental network, which is sort of that time when we're not focused on something. So functional imaging studies have shown when we focus on a specific task, certain specific nuclei in our brains light up. But in between those tasks, 
there's an interesting kind of integration and coordination between disparate parts of the brain called the default mental, mental resting network, which it turns out is really, really important for consolidating memory, uh, for creativity, um, for rest and renewal of our mental function. Um, and what's happened in the modern world is that many people now don't leave any time for that default me mental resting network, except when they're sleeping. And many of them have difficulty sleeping probably because they haven't had any time in the day where they've allowed their brain to rest and reintegrate uh, because we're constantly plugged in. We're constantly even now running, you know, distracting ourselves from ourselves. So I think, you know, sort of thinking about that default, default mental resting network as a necessary downtime for our brains is, is really, really important. I think one consequence of not having that downtime is not being able to, to know what your mind is like and not being able to view it objectively. Because I think a lot of people, and I think you did mention in the book that you struggled with this, where you have like a horrible thought and then you identify yourself with that thought and think of yourself as That's such right. a horrible person for having mm -hmm. it. But this is something I, go, I went into with a lot of research looking into free will that we, I don't believe we have any free will. Okay. And so if we're talking about um, thoughts themselves, if you meditate and observe your thoughts as they arise, you realize you're not making those thoughts, they just right. appear. So I suppose the, the one thing we might have some control over, which I'm not convinced we do, is how we identify ourselves with those thoughts. Mm -hmm. So if we have such a horrible thought, um, do we say we're a horrible person or do we say, oh, that was a horrible thought and move on? That's mm -hmm. not us. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what advice would you maybe have for someone who is experiencing that sort of um, mental anxiety over the thoughts they have? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is if, that you're, if you're someone who, like many of us who constantly is distracting yourself so that you don't know your own mind and your own percolating thoughts, mm -hmm. um, when you first try to do this exercise, whether it's through a moving meditation or a sitting resting meditation, you will likely be, be overwhelmed because you will the dam will come crashing down and then all mm -hmm. of those thoughts you've been trying to run away from will inundate you. So that, that's scary and hard, but the longer you allow yourself to just let those thoughts roll down the river, um, number one, the, the less it will become, the quieter that river will become as it eventually spreads out you know, onto the plain. Um, and the key there is just, to not, and this is what sort of the definition of mindfulness practice is, it's an overused word, but is not to um, judge yourself for the thoughts, not to, as you say, say, oh my God, I'm a freak, but instead just be curious, you know, be curious and you are not your thoughts, right? You are, you can have thoughts without that being something, you know, awful that you, that you're going to do, or that you, that you even want to do. Um, but instead just sort of be curious, like, oh, I wonder what that's about, you know? And over time, again, I think through this default, through the integration of the various parts of the brain, um, it is possible to sort of make sense of those things as long as we're not running away from it. Mm. So the, the thought that um, the thought that you mentioned in the book is, is that horrible thought of um, killing your baby. Right. And so like, but then you came to the conclusion that it wasn't that you wanted to kill your baby. It was that you were so petrified of some harm coming to your child. Right. And this is, this is something similar that, um, so my dad a few days ago had a dream. They've just got a new puppy and he had a dream of, um, 
I think the puppy died in the dream and he was mm-hmm. horrified by it. And that was, that was actually very helpful because I told him, well, you're not actually yeah. thinking you want to kill your puppy. You're actually just really worried that something's going to happen because it's so fragile. Right. That's right. This yeah. vulnerable creature is, is in your possession and you're responsible for it. And so the fear of somehow not being able to protect this vulnerable creature is now manifesting as you actively harming the creature. And that's exactly what happened to me as a young mother. But when I could slow myself down and allow myself to actually see the thought, because it was really right outside of conscious awareness, I could have just not seen it. Right. And, and then it would have stayed in the shadows and I would have continued to have enormous anxiety about being a new mother, but instead I let it come out and I was like, Oh, that's awful. What does that mean? Does that mean I want to kill my baby? But again, I just let it roll and observe more. No. And I came to understand, no, I, you know, I, that's not what it means. It means I'm really anxious about harm to this small creature and I'm feeling the weight of, of that responsibility. So I think, um, you know, it's scary to look at those things and sort of accept Um, those kinds of thoughts. But when we can quietly and calmly do that, it can be incredibly empowering because we can gain confidence in our ability to understand ourselves, to face new challenges, to tolerate distress, um, instead of constantly just trying to outrun it. Because the outrunning thing just doesn't work. No matter how fast you run, you're you're never going to run fast enough. It's always going to catch up. Better to just stop, turn around, look at it and go, okay, this is this is, uh, you know, what I have to deal with. Yeah, I think that's where the usefulness of looking at things objectively or using objectivity comes in, where observing your, observing your thoughts is a subjective way to look at it, but um, perhaps breathing is one thing where if people just start taking some deep breaths, slowing their heart rate, if they um, widen their visual field, that's another thing. Like yeah. when you're, like these are all things that your, your body automatically does when you have these thoughts or when you're stressed. So doing that, just slowing your heart rate de-stresses you so that you can look at things more objectively rather than panicking over them. That's right. Right. And again, a key is there is not, not saying, Oh my God, I'm a horrible person or I'm a freak or I can't believe I had and part of why, why I wanted to share that. That was like, I'm a doctor. Right. And I have some crazy thoughts. Um, you know, it doesn't make me a crazy person or a bad person. Like that's the brain is sort of like a, a bubbling cauldron and uh, just stuff bubbles up, you know, and that's normal, natural. And if, if we're not consciously aware of it, then sometimes it comes out in our dreams, right? Like your, your dad's dream, it'll come out in that way, but it's okay to let yourself just be curious about mm-hmm. what's going on in your brain, you know, thinking about thinking, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Are there any supplements that you recommend to patients for addiction? So the ones that come to mind are like 5-HTP, which mm-hmm. does something with serotonin, I'm not sure what it is, but is there anything that you found is useful for addiction? Well, in general, if I prescribe something, it's, it's usually like an FDA approved drug that has been vetted. I, I don't know enough about a variety of supplements to feel comfortable saying you know, this, supplement sure, or that supplement, which isn't to say they don't have utility. I just don't know very much about them, but there are FDA approved medicines that can help people with addiction. For example, there's a medicine called naltrexone, which blocks the opioid receptor And it's helpful, not just for people addicted to opioids, but also people addicted to um, alcohol because alcohol is mediated in part through our own endogenous opioid system. So when we give people a medicine to block the opioid receptor and they drink alcohol, it just doesn't taste quite as good. So it's a way of, for that pleasure pain balance, you know, if alcohol usually tips it a lot and you take naltrexone, it just tips it a little. And then 
if it just tips mm. it a little, it's not as reinforcing. You don't get as many gremlins on the pain side and you don't get caught up in that vicious cycle. Naltrexone has also been shown to help people with compulsive gambling. So potentially again, um, gambling may be mediated by the endogenous opioid system, making it naltrexone, making it just slightly less reinforcing. And there are other medicines that kind of work in different ways to kind of manage, help people manage this pleasure pain balance. Do you have any views on um, drug policy? Do you think we're doing things correctly now? I think that's where I, that's perhaps where my interest in this sort of thing came from about Mm. maybe six or seven years ago. um, For my journalism degree, we were tasked with making a short documentary and I did mine on drug policy and went to a, a drug charity and filmed there and then ended up volunteering for that drug charity. I was just very interested in um, how harmful these drugs can be and also how beneficial some drugs can be, um, but ultimately how harmful the drug policies that we have in place now can be. Um, And I think that's maybe sparked interest in free will, because if we're talking, if we don't have any free will, then people who become addicted to drugs didn't make their choices. Mm. And that's quite a backwards way as that we as a society view people who are addicted right. to drugs is they made their own choices. Well, maybe they did. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, do you think we should be changing our drug policies? Is decriminalization an option? Do you think? Yeah. Well, first I just want to echo something you said, which is I very much agree that, you know, every mental illness is a stress as a result of the stress vulnerability diathesis. So people come with different degrees of vulnerability and then it's the environment that determines whether or not they're going to get that, uh, that mental illness. People who are very vulnerable to that mental illness don't need a very, you know, addictogenic environment and they will get addicted. They'll find something. But with our work ecosystem today, with so many addictive substances and behaviors, even those of us who previously would have been immune to this problem are now vulnerable to the problem of addiction. So I agree with you in the sense that, um, that the environment is a huge player um, in terms of, um, how many people will get addicted and what they'll get addicted to. And that it's not just about like, you know, a person's, um, let's say, you know, brain chemistry, because we all have the same wiring um, that has us approach pleasure and avoid pain. And that's essentially what addiction hijacks is that motivational circuit. Um, in terms of, you know, the criminal justice system and our drug policies, clearly we haven't figured it out yet. As you well know, um, in the U.S., we've had this war on drugs since the 80s, where we arrested people for even a possession of small amounts of cannabis, um, put them in jail, and that as soon as they got out, they continued using. Um, so it didn't decrease the problems of addiction or related harms uh, or, or criminal activity. And because of um, structural racism in this country, it led to the vast majority of people who were incarcerated for minor drug possessions um, being people of color. Um, so clearly that's not the answer. However, I do not believe that going to the other extreme and making addictive substances um, legal and widely available is the answer either, because it's very clear that one of the biggest risk factors for addiction is simple access to that drug. If people have more access through whatever means, <clears throat> they're more likely to get addicted. So I think we need to figure out what, again, what that middle road is. I do think that the criminal justice system has a role to play. Why is that? Because one of the common symptoms of severe addiction is that people will engage in illegal activity in order to get their drug of choice. Um, 
So people with addiction will interface with criminal activity. I conceptualize that as a symptom of their addiction. Um, it, it, but it does mean because they are engaging in unlawful and potentially harmful acts, um, we do need to hold them accountable. So it's holding them responsible for those actions while also trying to get them treatment for their addiction, which they only have a certain degree of responsibility over. So um, I guess that's where I come in. I think we have to, and this is happening, you know, in myriad different ways, the criminal justice system, partnering with the healthcare system to uh, use um, things like contingency management or rewards and punishments to funnel people who break the law as a result of their addiction into treatment rather than into pure, uh, you know, incarceration or other legal sanctions. Now, I don't want to give away the end of the book, but one of the, the images you use at the end of the book, it reminded me of something I read in another book, um, uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Victor oh, yeah. Frankl. Yep, one of my so in, in that book, he talks about um, obviously meaning, but he, he says that life is like a movie and that it's lots of small images and you will not figure out the meaning of the movie or of life until you get to the very end if you skip mm. right to the end of the movie right to the end of life you're not going to know what the meaning is i actually um that small tattoo there so old, oh, old great, style camera yeah. that's what that was symbolizing i love it um, that's great yeah so i think that's something that people can maybe take um some sort of hope from and that when i think that's another thing that's related to addiction as well is that people are struggling to find meaning um, mm-hmm. And the answer, which is in, the, in that book, the answer is there is no meaning to life. You're not going to find something that's universal of meaning to life. Um, but yeah, is that, do you think that's a similar image to what you were portraying in the book? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess my, I, I think it is possible to find meaning, um, but mm-hmm. we, don't, we don't find it with the grand pronouncements. We find it Mm-hmm. by living each day according to our values and, and making meaning, you know, in an iterative way every single day through time while not knowing exactly where it's going to lead, but trusting in the process. Um, and so I, I think that's really, you know, it's one of the key messages that, I, again, I've learned from uh, my life, but also my patients in recovery, this idea of taking it one day at a time. Because if you stack on a bunch of good days, you get a bunch of good weeks and good weeks lead to good months and good months lead to good years. And we can't know exactly where it's all going, but we can, the things that we can control here, uh, you know, in now is, is, um, and I guess I, I do believe it's, I'm curious about your not believing in free will. I'm sure it has to do with like all the antecedents that led up to this particular moment, um, us not controlling that, but Nonetheless, um, I actually do think that there is that moment of choice um, that we all have throughout our lived time. And that, as I say in the book, and something one of my very wise patients told me that one of the things that he learned from recovery from addiction is that the hard way is usually the right way. And I love that because sometimes when I'm stuck, not knowing what to do, or I have a choice, I'm not, not sure which way to go. I think about that. Well, what's, what's the hard way? What, what's the path that would be more effortful for me? And I think that that's probably um, the path I should take. That's probably the right path. So I guess it's those, those kinds of messages. Yeah. Um, and talking about your patients and what's, what's the most inspiring patient you've ever had? 
Oh my gosh. They're all inspiring. They're Mm, all so inspiring, you know, Mm. um, because it takes just tremendous courage to pull yourself out of the hole of severe addiction. Um, and a kind of real faith, frankly, in like, you know, what the future will bring and being able to tolerate an enormous amount of psychological and also sometimes physical distress to get there. Just again, trusting in the process. Um, even when you don't feel good, right? One of the things that I think is a little bit of a, let's say a misleading stance in mental health treatment today is this idea that, you know, if we know ourselves well enough and we've explored our psyches well enough, um, then we'll know, you know, what our, what we're supposed to do or what the thing is that we should be doing now. But the truth is that part of, I think, you know, living a meaningful life is, doing something that's actually contrary to what you feel like doing in the moment. Um, and that that's really hard. And that's what people in recovery have to do every day for a long time, right? They have to do something contrary to what their brain is telling them to do and asking them to do. And, and that's, I mean, that can be exhausting, right? Day after day after day. Um, but the more they do that, the more they get to that place where, you know, their desires and values are aligned with, their true goals and and those things kind of get into sync. But as you're getting there, it's very, very difficult. Yeah. I suppose like the one piece of advice would be not to chase happiness because the more you chase happiness, the more it's going to run away from you. Um, And just accept that you will be happy in some instances and you will be struggling in some instances, but you really, you have, you have at least little control over when you will be happy and when you won't. Yeah, I think that's really the key because one of the key features of addiction is that we, at least for a period of time, can control the way we feel in the moment by using our drug, right? I know when I do this thing or ingest this substance, it will change the way I feel right now in a way that I want. And so it's that that control that is part of what's so appealing. And recovery is about letting go of that control and acknowledging that, acknowledging that we control almost nothing. And that our moments of happiness, the best moments, you know, the ones that are healthiest and, and have kind of deep meaning for us, we probably won't control at all, right? We, we, we can set it up and do this and do that. But at the end of the day, it's going to be, you know, the profoundest moments of happiness sort of come unexpectedly and unbidden and are brief, very brief. And when they come, we have to just go, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm there. It, you know, happened. And then you know that in you know seconds, it will be gone again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so let's, I'm thinking we will have time for some quick, quick fire questions, quick, quick fire questions. Anyway, um, so the first um, part of these questions are from the Tim Ferriss show. These are not my questions, so um, I'm not that smart to come up with these amazing questions. Um, <laughs> so um, what's one book you've gifted to the most people? Um, probably in recent years, um, a book called Firethorn which is a um, part of a um, historical novel that's two books of a trilogy. It's really beautifully written which, with a, a very wonderful female heroine who, um, who is sort of the, the key character. Um, that one um, I've gifted, it's, it's wonderful. I'm still waiting for the author to write the third book. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have become a bit of a stalker emailing her. When is the third book coming out? <laughs> um, and then um, I'm 
I'm blanking on the name of the uh, a book on writing that I really love. Um, I can't believe I'm blanking on the name. It'll come to me in a second. Um, clear and simple as the truth. Okay. Clear and simple as the truth. It's a very good book on writing, but I also think it's a philosophical text. It's covertly a philosophical text about what is knowable and about uh, our ability to find the truth. Interesting. Okay. Um, what purchase of a hundred dollars or less has most impacted your life? Hmm. My goodness. Purchase of a hundred dollars or less. That's hard. I'm not a person who um, gets a lot out of buying things. At least I haven't okay. in most of my life. I, I'm not a shopper. Um, so I don't, thing. yeah, it's just one of those things. That's not my drug of choice. So to speak. <laughs> so um, I can't even think of anything. Okay. Um, what, if you could have a gigantic billboard showing to billions of people, what would you want it to say? Ah, I think I would say uh, the right way is usually the hard way or the hard way is usually the oh, right yeah. way. Very good. I like that. Um, what is one absurd or weird thing that you love? Mm, there are lots of absurd, weird things that I love. I love uh, YouTube um, outtakes of Candid Camera. For some reason, it's hilarious okay. to me to watch people sort of, um, you know, be in these strange situations, real people in real life and how they handle mm. it. Interesting. Okay. Um, in the last five years, what belief, behavior, or habit has most impacted your life? Radical honesty, which I write about in the book, something that I learned from my patients, telling things about, uh, telling the truth about things large and small. Um, as, as kind of a daily practice. And I try to do that and I've gotten much better at it. Still, still have a ways to go. Um, what advice would you give to a young 18 year old and what advice should they ignore? Uh, I guess the advice I would give to a young 18 year old is get offline, <laughs> get offline, <laughs> be in the real world, allow yourself to have a sustained thought that's not reactive to somebody else's, but um, just comes to you from, you know, sitting with your own thoughts um, or moving with your own thoughts, but something that's um, born of you, which I think can only really happen if there are some sustained periods where people are not uh, not reacting to things that they get on the internet. Um, and the advice that I would have an 18-year-old ignore, was that the other one? Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, the one that would have them ignore is um, look for your passion. I think that we have too much of sort of trying to find that one perfect thing that we were meant to do. When in fact, if we just look around us, you know, at the life we were given and try to figure out what needs doing, what the work is that needs doing that we can help with, that will lead us to invest our energies in that activity, which will make it interesting and allow it to ultimately become our passion. Mm. I think that's, that's similar to what I would say is that um, don't close any doors. I think uh -huh. a, lot of, a lot of what we're taught in school is to know what you want to do and then aim single-mindedly at that one yeah. thing, no matter what anything else is, ha what, what else is happening around you. Yeah. Whereas if you have all your doors open, you might start to realize, well, maybe that's not what I want to do and start pivoting or start completely U-turn and change direction. Um, and I think that should be encouraged. Yes, I agree with you. I, and I love the way that you um, kind of communicate that. The, the way that I often say something similar is be open to 
you know, the environment, you're, you're open to what the universe is asking you to do. And if you narrow and shut down, then you're not able to see the things that come along because life is this, it's just a river, you know, it's a, it's a, it's flux. And we're, when we're, I think in our lives, the way we were meant to be, we are bobbing along in that river. But if we're just clutching, you know, a log that's sticking out and just determined to hang on to that log, we're not, we're not really in the flow of our lives at this time when we were born in humanity. And we're going to miss out on so much. Mm-hmm. Um, when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, what do you do? Mm. I actually pivot to um, a power outside of myself and I ask for help. Wow. Okay. Uh, how does that, how does that manifest when you, how do you, how do you, how do you do that? I literally feel a kind of physical pivot of my mind to okay. um, a, a higher power. And I literally ask for help. Wow. Uh, do, do you believe that there is some form of God there or is it similar to um, famous Stoics who don't necessarily believe there's a God there, but still believe in asking for something? Oh, that's interesting. I did not know that the Stoics did that. Um, yeah. You'll have to tell me where where to read more about that. Um, you know, it is a very, I can't answer that simply because um, I'm still processing what it is for me. And also whenever that word God is invoked, it gets so complicated because it means it's so, it's such a rigid concept for some people and so off-putting for others. Um but I can say for sure, I believe in the, the pivot and I believe in the asking um, and what exactly the nature is of what the agent, the agent being asked. Um, that's a longer discussion. Sure. Um, these next few questions are from James Lipton from the Actor okay. Studio. These are um, even quicker than what we just did. So uh, what's your favorite word? My favorite word? I don't know. And that's not my favorite. It's not that I don't know is my favorite word. Not, <laughs> right, I, I don't sure. know what my favorite. I don't know what my favorite word is. Do you have a least know. favorite word? Oh, I, I wouldn't want to say my least favorite word uh, on the podcast. <laughs> I do have okay. one. I don't want to say it. <laughs> okay, I'll assume it's a curse word. Um, no, no, it's not. No, it's, it's a. Not. Okay. It's a. No, it's a political term. I just don't. Oh, okay, right, yeah. sure. Right. Um, what profession other than your own would you most like to attempt? Oh, you know, if I could come back as um, like a singer or an athletic coach, those are two things that appeal to me a lot. Okay. I like an actually talented, a talented singer, not, you know, a person of who course. can actually sing. Of course, of course. Um, what profession would you least like to do? Um, hmm. I don't think I would ever be good at anything involving money unless my life okay. really depended on it. And then I could probably be ruthless, but I wouldn't want to be. Okay. And this maybe goes back to what we were just discussing. So if, if heaven exists, what would you like God to say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Oh my goodness. Maybe you were a good mom. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay. <laughs> um, and so lastly, um, just before we finish up, where can people buy the book? Um, and I just, I, I listened, I was listening to you on the Jorgen and I found out it's a New York Times bestseller and it's yeah. sold out a lot of places. Um, so that's amazing. Um, yeah. So yeah, where, where can people buy the book? Is it? Well, it's, a, it's available in the UK. Um, it's been um, 
it, with the, the rights were bought by um, Hachette or Headland Public Publishing in the UK. So it should be available wherever books are sold in the UK and then also, also available on Amazon. Perfect. Um, and you're not on social media, are you? No, I'm not. So we won't say that. Good, very good. <laughs> um, so yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to spend your morning and well, my evening um, here. It's it's a, it's a massive pleasure and I do get so much joy when I do, because this is a great thing to do. I read a book and then I get to discuss these things with yeah. the authors and I'm always, I'm always surprised at how many, how many of you actually take the time. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for, for taking the time. Well, you're very welcome. You know, it's all as a writer, it's a great honor that someone takes the time to read uh, what we've, what, what I've written or what, what someone else has written. So it's always a pleasure to talk with somebody who's done that, you know, taking the time to read a book and then reflect on it. So it's, it's a joy. Thanks for having me. No problem. Uh, so yeah, uh, enjoy your day. Um, I'll let you get on with starting your day and I'll finish my day. And that's the end of episode 19 and the end of In Context for 2021. Thank you so much for listening and thank you very much for your support thus far. I hope you enjoyed these conversations as much as I enjoyed being in them. Again, if you could like, follow, subscribe wherever you're listening and leave a good review, that genuinely means a great deal. All references that are made throughout the episode can be found in the show notes. And if you want to stay up to date with the podcast and any other work I'll be doing, you can follow my Instagram, which is gtmedia.uk. You can find me on Facebook, which is gregorthompson-journalist. I also have a website where I post all my work, which is gtmedia.uk. And you can watch the podcast on YouTube. The channel is GT Media UK, all one word. But for now, thank you very much for listening and all the best for your 2022. And I'll see you next year for more In Context.